Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I want to start out today with a great big thank you to all of you who are helping us grow this conversation here. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of you who are downloading this podcast and listening and subscribing and sharing, and I'm really excited about that, and I'm really grateful. Thank you so much for helping me make this happen. Uh, I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, a book that I wrote last year for Penguin Random House about navigating a healthy pregnancy and birth for mother and baby. And it's available everywhere books are sold. And in fact, I found it recently in a pretty unlikely place. Um, I have been doing a bunch of road trips this summer, um, both down to California and over to Montana to go to music festivals, which is one of my favorite summer things. Anyways, I was driving by myself to through Montana, and it was dark out at night, and it was one of those situations where the road had narrowed from two lanes down to one lane because of construction, and um, there were cement barricades on either side of the lane, so all you could do for this stretch of several miles was just stay in your lane. Um, people drive fast in Montana, and I was going probably about 60, 65 Um, And I was probably bringing down the average. Most people are driving 70 or 80, even in a one-laner. Anyways, it's a dark night. It's a country road. And all of a sudden, there in my lane that I cannot change out of is a dead antelope. And the only thing I could do was roll over it at 60 miles an hour. Um, Shortly thereafter, I started to hear a great big rattle on the car. But, you know, I kind of decided... I am in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to keep going. So I drove another 100 miles with that rattle. And yes, I was rather um, scared. I was by myself on this trip. And I did it anyways. I got to my destination that night, um, pulled into my hotel, and just let the car sit there. But of course, at that point, I saw I was dragging stuff on the bottom of the car. Next morning, I went to a Les Schwab, and while the guys put my car up on the rack, they told me, you know, go go on over there, get a cup of coffee at that store over there. So I went across the street, and there was a store that was selling um, videos and electronics and fishing equipment and camping supplies and bait and tackle and books and and coffee so I grabbed a cup of coffee and I was, you know, rummaging around their book, their book uh, section, and there was my book. And I was just so thrilled. It was such an unlikely place in the world for me to find it, but there it was. I was so happy. Um, and yeah, I did a little, I did a little happy dance that it was there. Um, anyways, when I say that common sense pregnancy is available everywhere, apparently it really is. Um, the easier place to get it is Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble or Target or wherever. Anyways. This week, there's so much going on in the news. It's, you know, the election and all of the madness that's going on there. Um, And the Olympics, which I think are really super fun. Um, I love how many parents are competing and how they're making these big statements about how important that role is to them by bringing their babies and children with them and making a point of appearing in the public eye. I mean, you know... All of us who are parents are doing freaking awesome stuff. We're all hitting these huge, huge targets just in our regular day-to-day life. And the more that we integrate images of accomplishment and integrity and hard work and determination um, with our parenthood, the better for everybody. You know, it's just better for everybody. Um, 
that image of Kristen Armstrong and her little five-year-old boy right after she won the Olympic gold in women's cycling. Oh my God, that was just so sweet. You know, she just, she finished her event. She checked to make sure that she had won and then she collapsed to the floor. And then the um, paramedics came and made sure that she was okay. And once they knew that, yeah, indeed she was, they let her little tiny boy come to um, greet her. And oh my God, it was just so sweet. She's crying, he's comforting, and the look of intimacy in their interaction, that is just parenting in a nutshell. I love, love, love that. And of course, Michael Phelps' baby with his red, white, and blue sound-canceling headphones. You just can't get any cuter than that. And um, oh, Allie Raisman's parents. Oh my gosh, their poor worried faces. I swear I know that they're meme of the week right now because they've been making some, they've been pulling some pretty funny looking faces, but I swear if I had a kid in the Olympics, I'd look exactly the same way. Or actually I'd probably be a crying mess because of the stress of it all. Um, what else about the Olympics? Um, well, you know, I'm going to give this a feminist slant if I can. And I pulled up some statistics that I think are pretty exciting. Team USA has the most women of any nation competing. Um, our team is 53% women and 47% men. Women are absolutely killing it in these games and making us all very proud. Apparently 10 of the women on Team USA are mothers. And, you know, of course, the, the, the banter is, well, how do they do it? How do they, you know, how do they be the best athletes in the whole damn world while also being mamas? And, you know, you could ask that of anybody. That question is asked of working mothers all the time. And what it really comes down to is you prioritize, you get some help, and then you do your thing. You do the thing in front of you, and then you do the next thing and the next thing. And that's how any parent gets through the day. Um, you know, I, I love that, that more and more mothers are doing these absolutely amazing things and that our conversations around them in the public eye in the media and you know around the dinner table um, we're having to talk about this we're having to see how motherhood and parenthood um, show up in our cultures and and what are our prejudices and what are our preconceived notions it's you know it's a lot to talk about and I'm really grateful for the conversation you know I love a good conversation. Um, you know, some of the things that we're noticing, though, that is that even though women make up the bigger portion of Team USA, we're still dealing with so much sexist crap, like media references to women's appearances, how their male coach or husband is the one who made them champions, and all that age-old nonsense, as if, you know, it's not enough to be the very best in the whole world at something you still got to knock a woman down a little bit, you know? Comment on her hair. Comment on her shape. Comment on the fact that um, it was probably her coach her, who made her who she is. Nuh-uh. She made herself who she is, whether she has, you know, traditional appearance or not. Um, you know, and then we're also hearing things like, I don't know, <sighs> there's that stupidity about Simone Biles' adopted parents some idiot referred to her adopted parents as not real. And <laughs> go Simone, she took care of that with just eight words. She tweeted, my parents are my parents and that's it. Damn right, Simone. 
Um, well, also, since the games are in Rio, where there's also a lot of Zika virus, we're talking about that virus again. It's definitely making headlines. Um, we're also seeing a few more cases pop up here in the United States. And a lot of us are looking at this you know, relatively new public health issue as a way to explore other issues related to pregnancy and maternal health and parenting. And we're talking about reproductive health, which is absolutely connected to maternal health. And perhaps that's what the Zika virus is doing for us right now, is demonstrating the connection between protecting our reproductive health and our sex lives and the crossover for maternal health. I mean, we all knew that all along, but the Zika virus is putting it front and center. Um, and we're, we're reading a lot of stories about things like how Olympic athletes are protecting themselves sexually and their partners from contracting um, STDs. In fact, I saw one story online somewhere about the 450,000 condoms having been donated to the Olympic Village. And that turns out to be enough so that every athlete can have 42 condoms apiece. Woo! That's a lot. I'm glad that they are protecting themselves. And I'm glad that we're talking about it as just a normal part of health. Um, another story caught my eye on NPR. And yes, I scan the news all the time looking for information that pertains to our conversation here on the podcast. Um, and Ray Ellen Bichelle, who is a reporter for NPR Science Desk, she was doing this really interesting article and then... Um, a video online that was related to Zika in Rio. And she was focusing on why there's not enough information about medications impact during pregnancy. And then it's true, most medications and vaccinations and other pharmaceuticals aren't tested on pregnant women because there are serious ethical and safety concerns connected to that. Um, I wanna pull a paragraph from her article that kind of sets the stage for this factor. Uh, Ray wrote, Decades ago, after pregnant women took thalidomide to relieve nausea, thousands of babies were born with birth defects, including arm and legs, arms and legs that looked like flippers. The drug had caused the defects, and that jolted people into a fear of mixing medications and pregnancy that continues today. Um, yeah, that's that's where it kind of that's where we started to get really really concerned. So here we are facing. Zika virus and this disease is sparking so many important conversations. So I thought we should get Ray on the line and have one of those conversations right here on our own little podcast. So let's call her up over at the NPR studios. Hey. Hey, it's Ray Ellen. How are you? Doing well. How about you? How are things in Portland? Um, We're going to have a good day. We have had the Portland funk, which is the gray drizzle gloom for the last few mm. days, right in the middle of August, which is not cool. But uh. today we're getting back to the whole reason why anybody lives in Portland, which is summertime. <laughs> so. I don't think I've heard of the Portland funk. That's a summer thing? No, it's the weather that we have. It's ah. gray, gloomy, rainy, cloudy. It's like we have this the huge... default state. Yes, yes. And <laughs> okay. All of us that live in Portland were willing to put up with that nonsense from late October until June, and then we want our summer, damn it. <laughs> Understandable. I think yeah. that's how people feel about the swampy humidity over here in D.C. at this point. Every time I come to D.C., you know, I'm, I don't necessarily focus 
a lot on, you know, the meetings that I have to hold or the content I have to create. I think about the frizz and the heat and <laughs> all of that. Yep. It's pretty all-consuming. It is. It is. It, I, I come into work every day on my bike and I have to take a shower. <laughs> well, nice that they have the shower. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me introduce you to our listeners today. Ray Ellen Bichelle is uh, a reporter at the Science Desk at NPR. Uh, she first came to NPR in 2013 as a Croc Fellow and has since reported web and radio stories on biomedical research, global health, and basic science. She won a 2016 Michael DeBaki Journalism Award from the Foundation for Biomedical Research. After graduating from Yale University, she spent two years in Helsinki, Finland as a freelance reporter and Fulbright grantee. Woo! <laughs> nice work. You're kind of a slacker. <laughs> <laughs> so now that I've read your, your official bio, mm -hmm. tell me who you are and what you do. Who am I? I am a person who is really interested in science and has always been really interested in science and decided to pursue that interest in the form of journalism a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm based in D.C., um, happily married, a sibling of four other people, and that's about it. You, you're from a family of five? Mm-hmm. That's what I've got. I've got five. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's I a good number. Often, it is. It's a, it's a generational thing, though, mm. to have to have that many kids. I have four of my own kids, and I have a niece who is mine. And, you know, the the question that I get, I don't get it as much as I used to, probably because people have heard me answer it, is, so you've got that many kids. Are you Mormon? Are you <laughs> Catholic? Right. No. Yeah. I think I my parents wanted to have something like eight kids, and they were really disappointed they only got to have five. <laughs> I'm the youngest of eight. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Our numbers are colliding. <laughs> <laughs> so they actually, your parents actually uh, went through on their promise. That's because they were Catholic. Oh, uh, gotcha. Yeah. From, I think they started having children in the late 30s and finished with me in the early 60s. And, you know, that was a time when... It wasn't necessarily such, um, you know, a moral or ethical or even, you know, it, it wasn't a religious issue. It, it was for my mom, but there also just really weren't that many contraceptive options out there. So I kind of doubt that my mom would have made that choice um, because she was Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. Yeah. But you should interview her. That'd be a fun podcast. It would be, but long gone. Oh, long gone. yeah, I know. There'd be so many things I'd ask her. Yeah. Yeah, if she had the choice and she was still Catholic, would mm -hmm. she have made that choice? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of think she wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, in your work mm -hmm. at the Science Desk for NBR, how often do you report on stories that pertain to, you know, pregnancy, parenthood, women's health, prenatal health, you know, the, the subject in which I I talk so much about. Yeah. How often, yeah. Well, let's see. There's a bunch of um, we we're really lucky at NPR to have a lot of science reporters. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, a big thriving desk, which is really exciting. Um, so we tend to sort of divide the duties. Um, I have reported, uh, I would say, a fair amount, especially over the last year on women's health issues um, with Zika in the news. It comes up a lot. Um, because that sort of brings pregnancy to the forefront 
Um, I think when you're covering health and medicine in general, um, you know, you tend to focus on diseases. And so the, the voices that you hear and the people you think about are, are tend to be the ones who are most affected. Um, so lately, you know, in the past few months or, or year, it's been um, a lot of thinking and, and talking about and to uh, people who are pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that most people who are consumers of media don't consider that all scientific and and medical reporting pertains to the experience of women. It all does. Mm. And, mm. you know, some of it is very specific, disease-oriented. It pertains to diabetics or it pertains to a subset of people who are going to get a specific condition. But we're all consumers. Mm-hmm. All of it is kind of interrelated. There are so many links in the chain. And yet, in terms of maternal health specifically and women's health, it almost seems like it has to have that tag for mm-hmm. for people yeah. to dial into it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it also seems like um, it's something that... Uh, that for whatever reason, it always is female reporters who end up doing those stories. Yeah. And lately, I, I would say so, because, you know, men have, you know, maybe just in their innocence or their ignorance or whatever, they seem to be putting their foot in it and tracking it around whenever they try to talk about women's <laughs> health. Either that or we're looking at them in the crosshairs. Mm. You know, I think that people are pretty, um, they can be pretty aggressive in terms of their criticisms of what men say. And Mm. therefore, men don't want to talk about it, it seems like. Yeah. Well, and I kind of understand that. I mean, um, I've probably come close to feeling that way when I'm reporting stories that have to do with men who have sex with men. Um, Mm -hmm. It feels kind of like, why am I reporting this? You know, like, who, who... Who's going to pay attention to this? I, I'm clearly not in this community. Um, so, so I kind of I understand that it yeah. that there's there's something beneficial about um, having somewhat of a stake, however small, in an issue that you're covering. Yeah, and we've had generations upon generations of only having women's health information disseminated by men, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, as you know, when you're reporting on a story. You may have, you know, several thousand word transcription from a conversation you had, Mm -hmm. but you only get to use 500 words. So Mm -hmm. as the reporter, you're the one who gets to decide what information we get. And that has sort of historically been how it's been. Men have decided what information women should know. And it's gotten us into a bit of a pickle, Hmm. to put it in a technical term. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that women's health is fairly represented in the news? Ooh, I don't know. Um, is it fairly represented in the news? Do you I don't think know. It I gets... think there's a lot of things that we talk about um, that we frame as problems that maybe are much more complicated than that. I mean, teen pregnancy is probably an obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the um, American, oh, it's ACOG. What is it? American yeah, Gynecologist American and Obstetrician. Yeah. College of Obstetricians. Anyway, you know what I'm talking yeah, about. The ACOG I do. meeting. ACOG. <laughs> <laughs> and was really interested to talk to a bunch of practicing obstetricians who were saying that actually some of their best patients are teen moms because they mm-hmm. actually will listen 
and be open to advice from a doctor and will mm-hmm. change their habits. Um, so if you say, actually, you shouldn't reward a kid with a piece of candy because maybe that's not the best thing for them at this stage in their development, then they might just listen and, and change that versus people who are older who might not be so, um, who might already be more set in their ways. Um, and then also they they were really smart about reframing the whole I mean, I felt like I got a different perspective on teen pregnancy in general, that the the message that I constantly read in the news and that I tend to come across is that teen pregnancy is always um, bad or it's, uh, you know, changes someone's life in a in a difficult way or right. it's um, accidental or, in a negative or unplanned. Way. But in fact, like a lot of people want to have babies when they're young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So I think there's elements, there's, there's, that's one example, but I, I think that um, that sort of comes up a lot. We, we pick a topic like teen pregnancy and we say, this is a, um, this is a, a sad or a bad thing. And we're going to cover yeah. it as a problem when in fact, yeah. it's not always actually a problem. Yeah. I spent about 20 years working as a labor and delivery nurse and oh, okay. had more than my fair share of, um, Teenage moms because I liked them. I like I like teenagers. Really? A lot. Okay. I really do. I you know they're challenging individuals, mm-hmm. but they're also they've got all the potential, and they're like you said, they're willing to learn. Hmm. And I think that teenage moms know that you know they're they have several strikes against them in terms of their age and their experience and the way people judge them, mm-hmm. and and they want really badly to do a really good job. Mm-hmm. And I I think that I've talked to enough teen moms over the years now that they kind of want to represent for, damn it, we're good moms too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're young, but we're good moms. Yeah. And, and they are. They are, you know, to the best of their abilities, just like anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Do you think that women's health issues get enough space in terms of space and and time in terms of the media. Hmm. And maybe not just women's health, but, you know, we have this whole umbrella of things that we call women's issues Hmm. that all pertain to our health and our our lifestyles. Do you think that that gets enough focus? I don't know. Let me think about it. I mean, so my experience on a day-to-day basis is give me more time for everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. To report a story, no matter what it's on. Um, I tend to have, I mean, sometimes I have weeks to work on a story, but most of the time it's like 24 hours or sometimes less than that. Um, and and then you, you have to do all this reporting really fast and then you have to squeeze it into this, you know, three minute slot on Morning Edition or yeah. All Things Considered. Um, so I kind of feel most of the time like... Eh, I need more time for for all topics. Yeah. If we're really going to understand all the intricacies and the nuances and get an actual story um about women's health. I really don't know. I mean, I do feel like maybe with um I do wonder if when we have news events, you know, particular things that tend to dominate the news, so something like uh the um, Supreme Court decision on Planned Parenthood and mm-hmm. on abortion clinics um, or something like, uh, again, Zika virus and its 
impact on pregnant women in Brazil or in the U.S. Um, I think that tends to crowd out other things. There, there seems to be um, in a lot of subject areas the sense that like there's a quota of stories on a certain topic that we can air before people mm -hmm. get sick of it. Um, mm -hmm. And so when we have these like heavily covered news topics that have to do with women's health, I, I do get the feeling that other stories sort of get dropped to the side um, because yeah. the women's health spot is full, you know? <laughs> yeah. But that and does I happen wonder... with politics. That happens with science. It it, it happens with all areas. So I, I don't know if it, I, I haven't really thought about whether that happens more with women's health than with other things. You'll think about it now. Probably mm -hmm. you'll start yeah. thinking about it. I, I'm always pondering the question of, can you tell a story without focusing on crisis? And hmm. more and more, and I'm thinking of you know, the Zika virus. Could you tell the story of mosquito-borne diseases that, you know, malaria kills women all the time yeah. and children all the time? It, but Zika is the current crisis. And, I, and I'm coming across... I'm coming to the opinion that, no, you can't. You mm. can't really tell the story without focusing on crisis. I don't know. I... Yeah, it's interesting to me. I've been thinking a little bit about the element of crisis in the the Zika reporting and just national response and interest in general. Because um, mm -hmm. if you think about it, it's all about, it's all about birth defects. It's about fear of birth defects. Mm -hmm. um, and... There's a lot of things that can cause birth defects, um, but we don't say, you know, let's get $2 billion in funding, emergency funding right now to fix um, fetal abstinence syndrome or right. to help combat, I don't know, pick anything that, you know, would cause a, a, a fetus a problem or would cause a, a child who's just been born um, to not start out on a perfectly healthy level. Um, I do we could feel say like, malnutrition. Yeah. We could say, right. you know, all kinds of issues. You could fill it in with almost anything. And I, I'm sure that it would by far eclipse the actual risk that Zika poses in terms yeah. of its impact on families and babies. Um, but because of this sense of urgency and because of this sense that it could happen to anyone, um, and that it can happen to us here in this country or even in, you know, a specific neighborhood of Florida, then suddenly it takes on this huge importance as, and maybe it's because, maybe it's because it's timely. It's a new thing. It's interesting. Maybe it's because there's still a sense that you can do something about it. Maybe mm -hmm. it's because there's a sense that it's out of women's control. So yeah. it's mosquitoes doing this. It's not someone, you know drinking alcohol throughout their pregnancy or you know, making a, a life choice that would, would cause this. Um, anyway, so lots of elements there. But uh, I do think that that crisis, crisis is, is very, uh, very helpful attention grabbing tool. <laughs> it really is. Uh, <laughs> it really is. And if you, you know, crisis, celebrity, drama, mm -hmm. all of that. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just been on my mind lately. Yeah. Yeah. Were you thinking about it in a specific case? Um, no, I've been thinking about it sort of broad spe spectrum. You know, mm -hmm. I, I spend all day every day writing stories too. And I just have been thinking about the idea 
you know, when you tell your own personal story or woman, a woman tells her birth story or you're talking about somebody else's event, you're always telling the story revolved around the negative impacts, the mm-hmm. negative things that happen, you know, and I just, I don't know. It's just my thought for the moment, you know, these days. Yeah. Can the, can the story be told in as powerful a way without focusing on the, on the negative or the crises or the thing that went wrong? I don't know. I, I, um, I'm going to go do some Google searching after this because <laughs> there is a whole line of journalism. It's called solutions journalism. Yeah. And it is, um, you know, people who, who practice solution, solutions journalism are thinking exactly this, that we, we can tell stories in a positive way. It doesn't always have to be, you know, super Debbie Downer. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Going yeah, to yeah. the news doesn't have to be depressing. Yeah. I don't know. I get these little kernels of thought and I just can't let them go until I'm bored with them. <laughs> Um, so I, I am all about feminism and healthcare. And Mm -hmm. I think that there is so much work that has to be done there. And that, you know, even the structure of how we receive healthcare is very authoritarian Hmm. and traditionally paternalistic Hmm. and that it has created this, um, power imbalance between, Hmm. Patients who are actually, they're the consumers of a product. They're the customer. They're actually the ones who should be in charge. And physicians who, they've got all the power. They're the ones who deliver the information as they see fit. And most of them do an excellent job. But, you know, we all know the other side of that story. And I'm kind of wondering if in your job as a reporter, you've stumbled upon examples where Feminism and healthcare need work or support. Hmm. Well, one thing that I've been learning about, um, yeah, there's definitely areas that need um, more attention when it comes to women's health. Let me let me just think how to phrase it. So, for me, what's interesting is sort of looking back. Um, I guess about 30 years now, Um, I think it was 30 years ago, uh, almost 30 years ago, that um, no research really was done on women at all, no biomedical research. There was this um, fear of studying women in clinical trials um, because uh, nobody wanted to hurt them. Nobody wanted to hurt their potential fetuses. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was assumed that all human bodies kind of work the same. And so we'll just do all the studies on men and then we'll go from there. Mostly white men, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then people <laughs> later realize that's not going to work because bodies work differently. Men's bodies work differently than women's. People sometimes in specific instances of different backgrounds, their bodies work differently, whether it's processing a drug or propensity for certain diseases. Um, So there was this realization, I think around 1990, when the NIH started an office specifically to get more um, people of color and also more women into biomedical research. Um, so it seems like the story kind of starts there with this real realization that bodies don't work all the same, (laughs) that like there is no prototype of the human. Um, and then 
people realize the same thing about children, that children aren't just small versions of adults, that they metabolize things differently. And you can't just take a dosage that would work for an adult and cut it in half for a kid that's half the weight. Um, and now I think where we're left is, at least the way I see it, um, we still sort of have some remaining bits. There, there are some groups of people who still are not quite represented in biomedical research, uh, perhaps to an extent that it harms them. Or, or maybe it's more important because there's just some gray areas, some areas that are a little bit unknown. Um, more drugs are now tested on children. Uh, after Congress passed legislation encouraging pharmaceutical companies to do that. They had some financial incentives. Um, but then we come to pregnant women, and there's still the fear of if we test on a pregnant woman, that is a scary thing. What will happen? What if we hurt her? What if we hurt the fetus? That is like this sort of big shadow looming over um, not all, certainly not all, but um, some researchers and, and companies um, and IRBs, so the institutional review boards. So well, that, yeah, that brings us to <clears throat> how you and I connected this week, which yeah. was this week's big story, When Pregnant Women Need Medicine, They Encounter a Void, which you reported and wrote for um, NPR this week. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about how that assignment came about. Yeah, let's see. I think I saw a press release in my inbox, and usually I delete them immediately. <laughs> <laughs> you but and this me one both. was interesting. Um, it was actually framed in the context of Zika. It was talking about how there's this group of bioethicists that really wants to um, make it more possible to develop a Zika vaccine or, you know, a vaccine for any number of diseases that will most likely come up in years to come um, with pregnant women in mind. Um, because I think in, in multiple cases over the last 10 years or so, um, whether it's a virus or, um, I don't know, a bacterial infection, it, pregnant women tend to have either a different response to vaccines um, or medications meant to treat the infections, um, or they just don't get it because uh, people are worried about giving it to them and instead try to treat everyone around them. Um, that doesn't really seem to work very well. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, how do you do that? Like, what kind of pregnant woman would sign up for a clinical trial in the first place? Um, and are there studies that actually involve pregnant subjects? Um, well, so I just had a bunch of questions. Well, you're asking the questions that I wanted you to answer. <laughs> if somebody, yeah. if a scientist asked me and I was pregnant, so do you want to take part in this clinical study? Um, we think it's going to be okay. It probably is going to be okay, but it might not. So you in? My answer would be no. <laughs> so yeah. what, did, what information did you get about to answer that question? Yeah. Well, I think when we... At least when I first thought pregnant women in clinical trials, I was thinking of um, something much more extreme than what's probably going on most of the time. So I'd done a story a few months ago on people who participate in phase one trials. That's where 
you know, you've just tested the medication in animals, you know, rabbits, guinea pigs, mice. And -hmm. now you want to see, okay, does it hurt people? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you get a bunch of um, healthy volunteers and you, in a very controlled way, test them at increasing doses to see if it causes them any harm. Um, So I was sort of thinking in, in... in that vein, like, you know, of course, pregnant women wouldn't sign up for that kind of thing. Like if they, they don't even know if this is safe in humans, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, really where the knowledge gap is, is, is not in the safety for a human. Well, let's see. I'm probably going to, you're probably going to have to edit this a bit. Um, uh, let's see. So it actually sounds like a lot more people are studying pregnant women than I expected, and they're doing so in pretty um, interesting and low-risk ways. Um, so a lot of the times the way it works is, um, let's say you and I have a condition like Crohn's disease. We probably need medications to keep the Crohn's disease, you know, gastrointestinal <laughs> problems low. Um, and if we happen to get pregnant, then we're probably going to stay on the medications. Um, so what researchers will do is they'll just follow women mm-hmm. who are in that situation and just see how they do. And, and over the course of many years and many different pregnancies, they can gather a lot of information. Or in another case, I mean, I think with the H1N1 mm-hmm. virus vaccine, I think... Um, I think H. I think it was H1N1 that uh, disproportionately impacted pregnant women. I think they were mm-hmm. getting sicker than other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when a vaccine became available uh, and it was first available in clinical trials, I believe that um, pregnant women were actually pretty enthusiastic about signing up because they felt that it was a, a, a low risk and... Um, potentially good way to protect themselves and their fetuses. Um, And then I think another example would be HIV. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's one trial that I learned about that I thought was really interesting in the way they approached it. Um, The, let's see if I can remember this one correctly. The trial was about, does this um, vaginal gel help to prevent a woman from contracting HIV um, Mm -hmm. during unprotected sex. And so um, they wanted to know if this also works in pregnant women, but they were worried. The researchers were worried that um, it might potentially cause harm to the fetus. So what they actually did is they started by um, recruiting pregnant women who were really late in their pregnancies Mm-hmm. And so they used the, they had them try the vaginal gel at the very, you know, the last week of pregnancy or something like that. So that's really limiting the amount of time that the fetus would be exposed to it. Then when they found that there were no problems at that point, then they get subjects who are now in the, you know, the last two or three weeks of their pregnancies. They get them to use it. And so they continue in that way. So they start with the safest circle and then they expand from there. So if hmm. I, I think once I learned about all these different formats of trials, it became much less of a scary concept. Yeah. Yeah. We're not talking about thalidomide babies. Right. Right. So you, you, um, I'm, you know, pulling some stuff out of the article that you wrote and it, you say that the CDC estimates that 70% of pregnant women in the U.S. take at least one prescription drug, whether it's for something like colitis or diabetes or just allergies. Mm-hmm. 
And that only about a dozen medications are approved as safe during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're unsafe. It just means that those are the drugs that have actually gone through all of the clinical trial stages and they say, yes, indeed, this one's okay. Right. It means yeah. there has been long enough, thorough enough research <clears throat> to say conclusively this is okay. Yeah. And that is pretty rare. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, one thing I should note is that um, I imagine a lot of listeners are familiar um, with the categories, so the pregnancy categories of medications. We have A, B, C, D, and X. Uh -huh. um, a being the one we were just talking about, which means good to go while pregnant. A-okay. A A-okay, exactly. And X being thalidomide, like don't do it. Yeah. Um, so that, the, the, that system is actually being phased out right now because mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, physicians, I think, but probably also patients and, and probably researchers felt that it was overly simplistic to the point that it um, uh, didn't do much good for patients. Um, because it made it seem like, you know, if a drug was in category D or C, it made it seem really scary. When yeah. in fact, it might have been in category D and C just because it had never really been tested in humans mm -hmm. or because it had been tested really <clears throat> well, you know, it had been tested in a, in a controlled trial, but a really small one. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they're doing now is actually uh, something that's a little more nuanced. So these pregnancy categories are going to be replaced with what I, if I understand correctly, it's going to be like a paragraph explaining what studies have been done in pregnancy on this medication and what mm -hmm. the outcomes were so that the doctor and the patient can have much more, uh, a, a more detailed idea of what risks they're actually talking about and what information is actually known. So risk aversion comes up in all kinds of ways in terms of women's health, maternal health, prenatal care you know, um, parenting. And there's such a, a range of, of willingness to take risks or assume risks. I should say to assume risks. Mm. That is really pervasive in, um, particularly in the United States. Some of that is you know, universal. None of us wants to mess up the mamas and the babies. Mm -hmm. None of us want to do that. But some of that risk aversion also has to do with, you know, medical legal issues and, um, you know, fear of being sued because mm -hmm. you mess up somebody's baby, somebody's going to get sued. And I'm wondering if you, I mean, maybe, maybe this is out of your area of expertise, <laughs> but you might have an opinion. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible for us to separate those two things? Repeat what the two things are. Um, the medical legal aspects mm. that are associated with, that create risk aversion, mm -hmm. um, and medical care potentially that hasn't been tested. Mm. It's a hard question and I don't know. know that there's an answer yet. Yeah, I don't know. I think I don't have an answer for you, but I do have a thought. Yeah, Which great. is that I think the, um fear of legal repercussions does skew people's risk perception in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. It makes, I think, this is just my opinion. Um, I, I, I feel like I've, it seems like um, it makes people think that 
things that they take, you know, external, you know, taking a pill or doing something like the risks that are outside your body somehow Mm -hmm. seem much bigger and scarier than the risks that are coming from your own body. Mm -hmm. Um, So to take antidepressants as an example, um, Mm -hmm. I think, or really like we had the example of Crohn's before, I think you can take almost any chronic illness. And in a lot of these cases, when it comes to pregnancy, Um, unfortunately, what sometimes happens is that the patient or the physician or both assume that whatever risk there is from having that illness is more worth taking than the risk of taking this drug. Um, And I think that boils down to just the fact that one is coming from inside of your body and one is coming from outside. Um, you That's, can't you can't be that. sued for for someone not taking medication, but you can be sued for someone taking medication. Yeah, uh, I think in a lot of cases that ends up causing problems, though, because I, of this skewed risk perception. I have actually never had anybody um, talk about it in that way. Hmm. That you know we're more concerned about external risk taking than internal risks that are present. I like that. Hmm. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, because I mean, and being depressed is not going to be good for any any person, any person's body, or yeah. whatever organism is growing inside that person's body. I know. Um, yeah. Likewise, you know, unmanaged chronic illness of many varieties. I know that many, many women are concerned about taking antidepressants, but mm-hmm. when they understand that suicide is among the um, biggest causes of death for mothers in the first year after delivery, then they go, oh, okay. Mm. That makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned in your article is that there's no way for a fetus to consent to a drug trial. Mm -hmm. Um, And fetal consent is a big issue in reproductive health and yes. human rights, especially in terms of things like, you know, the punitive laws that I'm sure you've reported on for women using recreational drugs in certain states mm-hmm. or refusing surgery or going, you know, doing something that's against their doctor's consent. And um, I guess I don't really have a question so much as I just wanted to know what your take on that is, what you're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't have a an answer. I mean, that's a it's a hotly debated topic uh, and very political. Mm-hmm. But I think that's one of the things that makes this ethical question of should we test more medications in pregnant women in controlled ways really interesting, um, but also kind of hard to resolve um, because um, it really depends on how you think about a fetus. Right. It depends where you say this, you know, where you say here, this is where life starts. And beyond that point, that organism deserves a right to make decisions about its life. Um, and it depends on how you view the relationship between the mother's body and the baby's body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fa- it's a fascinating ethical area, I think, pregnancy, because you have two bodies that are packaged into one. Mm-hmm. And both are constantly changing with each other as they go. Right. Um, and so it's really like having two 
I mean, it's, you know, it's two people packaged into one that automatically makes it really complicated. Um, And there are people who would prioritize the mom's decisions over the fetuses. And there are people who would prioritize the fetuses, not decisions, but safety over the moms. And I think it's very hard for people who who are on those different ends to have a conversation um, just because it hinges on this really critical question of when life starts and, and what is the public responsibility over vulnerable individuals like fetuses. I think it also has a lot to do with autonomy and, um, you know, whose rights are more important or valued mm-hmm. in society. And yeah. and what I'm thinking about is that, you know, I, I have spoken with um, a professor at Columbia University a number of times now, spoken about her. She does research um, about the maternal health experience. And she pointed mm-hmm. out to me that she and her, her team went through something like, I don't know, Many, 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 many thousands, tens of thousands of medical studies. They went through all the journals over 12 years. Hmm. And they found that of all the medical research that had been done, only about 3% uh, came under the headline of maternal health. Hmm. And of that 3%, like about a quarter of the studies had to do with the impact on the mother's experience Everything else is about the baby's experience. Hmm. And I, you know, when we're talking about, when we're talking about maternal health, we're usually talking, we say things like, well, you know, make sure that you take your vitamins because we want to make sure you have a healthy baby. Well, Hmm. vitamins are good for mom too, but we're acculturated to talk about it in terms of how it's going to benefit the baby. Right, right. Or, you know, we, we mostly talk about the prenatal experience and early parenthood on the fetus or the child. We don't talk about what moms are going through. And I think that that's something that we're starting. We're talking more about it, I think. Yeah. 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 No, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, It, it, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really know where that comes from. I I think there is something, there is some sort of thread um, in this sort of public, fascination or responsibility with people who are at the very beginning or pre-beginning of their lives and then at the very end also. Mm -hmm. I think that articles about pregnancy and fetuses um, and then also about end-of-life care um, and, you know, hospices, that kind of stuff like that, um, gets really a lot of interest. And I I don't really know what it is, but I think there's some feeling that there just seems to be some feeling that, that, uh, outsiders need, need to step in and help those people make choices that I don't think is true. If you just look at the adult population between birth and death. Right, right. I also think that, you know, culturally, once a woman becomes a mother and she's sort of fulfilled her reproductive purpose in life, there is sort of a cultural devaluation. Hmm. And it's subtle. It's very subtle. But it's things like 
you know, moms are portrayed by the media as being a specific way. Um, we use phrases like mom jeans and soccer mom, <laughs> and we don't mean it in a good way. Mm. We, you know, say, oh, she's got such mom hair. Well, you know, there's a devaluation that occurs, and it's it's pretty pervasive. Women even do it to themselves. Hmm. Yeah, I was you just know? thinking about that. Yeah, we do it to ourselves all the time. That's so sad. <laughs> yeah. And yet we come across as, you know, we say that motherhood is all important to our country. And yet <clears throat> in our conversations, in our representation, in our policy and laws, that just ain't the truth. Hmm. Yeah. So if you could change, you know, something about the way women's health is written about, um, what would you do? Ooh, what would I do? Um, well, I guess for one, I would like to have a wider range of ages among reporters. Mm -hmm. I think that at least in my experience, most of the reporters who are covering women's health tend to be women between their 20s and 40s. And it would be really interesting to hear from people who are younger than that, who are older than that. I think mm -hmm. the personal background of a reporter makes a pretty big difference uh, in a lot of cases, of course, not all on on how they report on something and what they decide is interesting and worth delving into. And so I think um, diversifying a reporter base, um, both in age, but but also certainly um, speaking about ethnicity and, and race as well, I think um, there's a lot of room for hearing more voices from journalists. And I think that that would be a really important step to take if we want to truly understand the issues that are important for women's health. I think that's a really good idea. I like that. That's very specific, too. Yeah, I, like I think it's pretty simple. But I mean, it, it's... um. It's hard to do in practice. I mean, you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of, at least in my immediate vicinity. I mean, most of us are white, probably similar socioeconomic mm -hmm. backgrounds, if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. um, that just, I mean, it works to some extent, but of course it would be better to hear. It's a limited lens. Different people. <laughs> yeah, it's a limited lens. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we have been talking for quite a while, mm -hmm. and I want to make sure I've got my final question to ask you. But before that, I want to make sure, is there anything else about the work that you do or the story that you reported on this week that you want to make sure our listeners hear about? Um, anything else from the story? Let me think about it. You know, one thing I didn't really mention, um, but I think is important to go into a little bit, is that... The reason why I thought this story was interesting is because it seems like the patient, and by that I mean the pregnant woman, is often in the crossfire between mm -hmm. um, different types of physician. You know, maybe there's a pediatrician, a midwife, a specialist, you know, a neurologist or a gastrointestinal specialist or something like that. And, and sometimes all of those professionals can have different opinions because they're coming at the woman's health from different perspectives. One prioritizes the woman's, you know, brain. One prioritizes the future child's health. One prioritizes, you know, fetal development. And so 
they might all have totally different ideas about how safe a medication is from that lens that they're seeing the patient through. Um, and so I think it is, at the end of the day, super important for patients to, and this is, I'm sure, not easy, but to be able to advocate for themselves and also to make sure that all of those healthcare providers talk to each other and get on the same page. Because yeah. it certainly doesn't help anyone if a patient <clears throat> is getting conflicting responses from different people. Um, and this is this is not really a decision that should completely fall on just the patient. I've been <clears throat> talking a little bit more advocating for the idea that when a woman is in a situation like that, that she contact her physician. Mm-hmm. Excuse, excuse me, I'm going to clear my voice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> contact her physician and um, say, I'd like to set my next appointment aside as a conference call with my specialists. Mm. Will you facilitate that? Yeah. And then she is in a room with her physician or midwife and, you know, and a, and a, her partner or her mom or her sister or somebody else is there with her and they all talk it out to the point that the comfort, the patient feels like she's got the information she needs and everybody is speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. And from that point, you know, if there are conflicting perspectives or opinions on what she should do, well, then all the cards are on the table. It's still ultimately up to that woman to make the ultimate decision. And that is what we call informed consent. Mm. It also implies informed denial. Hmm. She can say, I won't. But I'm I'm advocating for that. Set yeah, that, that time aside. Really yeah, I don't know how, I don't know I'm, how practical that can actually be, but it seems, seems like, like a pretty a, direct way to try to get everyone on the same page, though. So if it works, cool. I know it seems <laughs> it seems like a really good idea yeah. to me. You know, yeah. I would add just just thinking about this this um, you know experience of the patient. I would add that one thing that repeatedly comes up, um, and I am you know I'm guilty of this too, is I talk about maternal health like it's all about the woman's choices, um, mm-hmm. but obviously in a lot of cases it's a partnership um, mm-hmm. or a family relationship or. A lot of sometimes community choices and behaviors, um, and so I think that um, you know it, it, it. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this all the time. As um, maternal health is the choices that a a woman makes, <laughs> but well, she's choices that she she and whoever she is influenced by, or whoever she cares about, or whoever she wants to. Um, share decision-making with, they're also involved. She is heavily influenced by all of those things. Mm -hmm. And yet when it really comes down time, down to the the point where she has to say, yeah, I'm going to take that pill or yes, I'm going to have that surgery. It is her decision. Mm -hmm. All the other influencers can be really, really strong, Mm -hmm. but you know, at the final moment, it is her choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I I mean, I don't mean to, um, Maybe you didn't say that quite right, but but we talk about it like I just feel like I uh, keep talking about this issue like it's you know a a, a risk that a woman has to you know think about and choose on her own, and if she makes a bad decision, it's sort of her fault, and if she makes right. a good decision, it's normal. You know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If she makes I, a good decision, it was her doctor's idea. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. And mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that I think that we're, I'm really excited about is the um, 
the representation of fathers mm. and um, same-sex partners mm-hmm. in terms of co-parenting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just five, ten years ago, the only representation you saw of fathers in the news was that they were bumbling idiots who were, you know, had to follow mom's instructions. And we're seeing less and less of that. And we're, I think we're also seeing more and more willingness of um, partners and fathers to do the research, ask the questions, participate in the decision-making um, process uh, in a more egalitarian way. And I think we have a ways to go, but I'm excited about that kind of change. I think it's happening. Mm. Cool. Yeah. I mean, when you're watching TV now, you will see a fun article where the dad is doing laundry and he's not, (laughs) and he's not, you know, there's not soap all over the floor. He's just doing the laundry. That's cool. (laughs) It's subtle, but all of these things, all of these subtle things, you know, they have a place in our decision-making processes. I lived in Finland for two years and was really surprised at how many like tough guys were walking around with strollers with little babies in them. <laughs> yeah, Finland is like I just like feel a, like I hadn't seen that in the US. You know, tough tattooed guys with these like cute strollers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Finland is the high water mark. Mm-hmm. For, oh, yeah, know, they get uh, when whenever right. you're if you're pregnant in Finland, you you actually get a box in the mail that has all the materials you would need to take care of your baby for a certain amount of time and and you can actually use the box as a crib. Yeah, there's a. I um, did a podcast with the Baby Box Company. Which, oh no way! Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, they're they're an American company that's based on the Finland model, and oh. and now more and more um, hospitals and and countries are saying, yeah, we're going to do that too. Mm-hmm. And I know that some hospitals, I don't know where they are, who they are, but you know, people can look at that online. Um, are making that sort of their baby gift that they give to parents that deliver at their hospitals. So oh, nice. we're seeing some of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's time for our final question. Mm-hmm. Where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? Yeah. Let's see. So um, I would definitely like to become a mother soon. I'm talking about it with my husband as something that we're going to pursue in the next year or two. So imminent. <laughs> nice. And the story that I did um, I realized actually after I reported it, oh, that's actually relevant to me if and when I do get pregnant <laughs> well, um, because I am on antidepressants and that's one uh, of the big questions. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I think I'll, I'll look forward to having a conversation with my doctor again, if and when I do get pregnant about how to proceed. And, um, I am excited to be able to know that a a gray area of research knowledge doesn't mean that we don't know anything, but that we just have to look a little harder and push physicians a little harder for specific information so we can make good decisions. And you have to find physicians who aren't too frightened. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The fear factor. It's big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ray, this has been a really great conversation and I really appreciate your hopping on the phone and and uh, talking with our listeners. Yeah. This is great. Thank you for having me. I am happy to have you anytime. We'll talk again soon. All right. Bye.
Today's guest was Ray Ellen Bichelle, science reporter for National Public Radio, NPR. You can see other articles she's written over on the NPR website. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced in Portland, Oregon at Sounds Like Pictures Studios by Alex Ward. You can learn more about me and make donations to help support this podcast over at genefaulkner.com. You can email me your questions and comments at gene at genefaulkner.com and tweet me at genefaulkner. Thanks again for sharing, subscribing, and listening, and go buy the book, will ya? Let's talk again next week. Bye-bye.